Welcome to episode 291 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. It's time to get all aboard the Covenant train. We're still... So I, here's my metaphor now. I piece this together. I've been preparing this for this moment in time. Oh, man. We're, t- we're talking about the Covenants. And ah, now I'm already regretting that I started this. So this idea that like the Covenants, we got these train cars kind of linked together, and we're kind of going from car to car. And I thought it'd be fun to try to like somehow characterize them, because we talked about the Covenant of Works. I don't know what kind of car that would be. Maybe like the coal car, you know, like, yeah. you know, maybe the engine. Yeah. Something like that. I mean, this is going to break down real fast. So everybody get ready. The, the uh, train it's, go- is. it's going to derail. If oh, you will, man, <laughs> boom, Bazinga. So, so horrible. And so now we're going to talk about in this episode, the covenant of grace, which I was trying to think, what would that train car be? The covenant of grace. Yeah. I don't know, like the, the like the rest car, the sleeper car. Yeah, so that's what I was kind of thinking too. I was torn between sleeper car, if those still exist. Like I know that you can have like a sleeper compartment, but I don't know if there's like a whole car for just going to sleep. Or like, have you seen these trains that go like across the country and they have these like massive viewing cars where like you come, you sit and it's like all open. It's just glass, like because you're going through like oh, scenic vistas. Yeah. I kind of picture yeah. something like that. You're having like a cup of coffee or hot chocolate or a beer or something and just sitting back and resting and enjoying and seeing all this beauty. So it's the sea train. It's the sea train or the, it could be the caboose. And where it could be the caboose. I just like to say the word caboose. <laughs> it's a great word. We It's underutilized, underemphasized word. That's not my affirmation, but man, do I kind of wish it was. So before we hop all aboard the sea train for this episode, let's do a little affirming and a little denying. Let's go with affirming first. What are you affirming with? So you and I were talking about this, um, this app that I found that... Um, I'm going to recommend. I don't know why. My phone just dinged and screwed me up. Uh, we were talking about this little app. It's a podcast app uh, called Snips. Uh, Snipped, sorry, S-N-I-P-D. And it's uh, it's your normal, typical podcasting app, except for it has this sweet feature where it, it you can request that whatever their AI magic sauce is takes a look at an episode, and it will transcribe the episode. It will somehow apply AI logic and does a pretty good job, actually, to snip up the episode into discrete segments and also even make a recommendation for what, like, the key snips of the uh, episode are. I exported a snip to um, to my Obsidian notebook that I'm using for Zettelkasten. It actually summarized the, uh, the clip. So the if the clip that I had originally snipped had 500 words. It actually distilled it down to 300 words and was pretty accurate. So I just think this is funny because I requested it do a snip on uh, or do a transcript and chapter divisions on our Harmatology 2 episode, The Fall. Yes. And it did a really good job identifying all these chapters, except for apparently chapter 15 says, I'm deadly about to run a train on some ham. (laughs) Which I think Jesse actually said, I'm definitely about to run a train on some ham. But uh, yeah, but the snips that it um, the snips that it pulled out was one says, is this a covenant? One was, what's wrong with the fruit? 
And then one of those will so, will sin hold out, right? I don't know what that means. So you have to oh, you have I to be like a little it. bit discriminating. Um, but you can listen to a podcast episode. Not only does it chapterize it, is that a word? I guess it is. It, is. it chapterizes it for you. But as you're listening, you can push snip and it'll pull up a transcript or a timestamp and you can create your own snips. So the way I'm using this is I'm listening to podcasts in my normal podcast app. If I'm listening to a podcast and there's something I want to make a note about, I pause the podcast. I actually go back over to that other episode, to this other app, request the transcript, and then I come back to it later because you can get a list of like which episodes you have transcripts for. So then I come back and I make a snip and then that gives me the transcript and I export. I have this whole workflow that I'm doing. But it's just a really cool, interesting little app. Um, and if if lots of people have snipped uh, have used this this on a particular episode. So think of like a more popular podcast. You can actually see what has been uh, what has been flagged and snipped by other people in that are using the app. So it's not just the AI that's doing; it's actually other um, other users as well. So I just think that it's I just think that it's really good. So here's an episode from Reform Forum. The episode title is "The Necessity of Christ's Obedience for Our uh, Salvation," and the snips they suggested are. Quote, perfect obedience is necessary for salvation. The next one is, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. And the final one is, what are some of your hopes for this book? Which I'm sure if I listened to the episode yet, that would have context (laughs) that would make sense. But um, check it out. I think it's cool. It's called Snipped, S-N-I-P-D. I think it's probably only available for iPhone. I don't think it's available for Android. Sorry, Android users. But um, I could see this being a really useful tool, especially if you don't have a lot of time and you just kind of want to browse through the chapters and see, all right, does this um, does this make sense to me? Like, here's a two-minute clip it found in this episode from Reform Forum, The Active and Passive Obedience of Christ. So that's probably a pretty good description of what that is. If I'm looking for this particular topic, then I've got this right in front of me. So I, I think it's great. It's a pretty amazing technology. Uh, I don't know how it's done. Maybe there's like actual robots listening to the episode and they think that Jesse's deadly about to run a train on some ham. <laughs> it's but, not wrong. Uh, but actually, that was pretty close. It's pretty good. Yeah, for it, sure. Yeah, it's pretty good. Well, I have some good news for you. It's actually available on iOS and Android. So Ooh. everybody can get on the, in on this. That's not good news for me. I don't care about if it's available on Android. No, but, but I know you're going to share the, the joy Android of others. People. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And here's where this is like really helpful is... Maybe you might be helpful for with listening to us. If you enjoy a podcast that maybe is a little bit longer than you might like it to be, and you want to either like peruse what might be the notable topics or subsections within it, this is a really helpful ad. So there, yeah. I use this for certain types of podcasts in particular, but it really is. It's basically like if somebody took your favorite podcasts and turned them into audiobooks with chapter headings where you could dip in right. and out of. And beyond that, then if you had a whole AI assistant who would take notes in the podcast for you, that's what Snipped is. Right. So it, it's super yeah. clever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's great. I mean, I, I want to chalk this up to one of those, what a world we live in, what a time to be alive. Uh, what a time to be it's alive. It's just pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's it amazing. Is, it is pretty awesome. So speaking of what a time to be alive, I'm going to stay on that technology vein and jump around on it in a slightly different way. I'm affirming with an article that actually is denying against a bunch of stuff, but there's all kinds of lovely subscriptions that you can have these days. One, which I came across is called, is it just an e-newsletter called the catalyst and it's by the center for humane technology. And I'm just going to encourage you to basically go out and search for, I think this is called like eight, eight distortions of social media. 
Uh, and it's just a really interesting article from this group that thinks about these things, again, the Center for Humane Technology. And it's like some of the stuff that you and I have been talking about and processing for quite some time. But it's just a really lovely post, a little article on eight ways social media distorts reality. And then they speak in just kind of really practical, pragmatic terms about how to confront some of those distortions. Now, of course, there might not be a lot new in here for people, but it is, I think, eye-opening and to rehearse and to remember how there's a lot of good with social media. There's a lot that can be redeemed there, but increasingly its normative position is to breed distortion because distortion tends to, of course, make money and draw attention and get notoriety. So it's just, I think, helpful to remember that all of like the cognitive and emotional biases that are part of people as a result of the fall tend to get magnified normatively in social media, unless they're actively combated against. And even there, you know, all of our works, all of our best works, right. Are still just glittering sin. And so even as we try to redeem those things, we're going to fall short. But I think it's just helpful to remember that the biases exist and that unless we push against them, we're just prone to fall into them, no matter how good we think we are at guarding against them. So check this out. Eight ways social media distorts reality by the Center for Humane Technology. Yeah. I mean, I, that's a definite article that you need to read. Not like a definite article like in languages. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it has lots of definite articles in it, but that was not what I intended. Yeah. I mean, social media is the worst. That's why we're not on it anymore. So I don't know what else I can add to that uh, to that affirmation other than a hearty amen. I'll just add that this is the only podcast, maybe the definitive podcast where we could make that joke about definite articles. <laughs> and like, cause you know, you're right. I appreciate you just coming in with that hot because you know, somebody was like, that's not a definite article. And he'd be like, <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. Somebody was, somebody else was like, he missed an opportunity to make a definite article joke there. And I was like, no, I did not. I did not, sir. No, exactly. How and dare I, you? I said, good day. Speaking yes, of, I bite my thumb at you. Speaking of good day, what are you denying against? So uh, this might take a little bit of time. Let's take the it's time. One of those denials. So somebody sent me a link to a YouTube video with, um, I don't know how to say this channel. song. Two old white guys wearing sweater vests. Uh, those old white guys are named James White and Doug Wilson. I really and thought you were talking about the Muppets. I really I thought mean, that's it, where you were they, going they with that. They kind of are like those two cranky guys in the theater. I don't know what they're like. But, but the, 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 they did, did these things called the sweater vest dialogues, which I don't know if they were trying to be like cutesy or what, but it was just, just kind of silly. Um, and basically this was like James White giving Doug Wilson a free ride to – justify all of his errant uh, heretical doctrines with no actual cross-examination, but then at some point can say like, well, we did an interview. I asked him the hard questions, but really he didn't. And so this one was about EFS and it was sent to me because, you know, Doug Wilson has this article that came out kind of in the height of the, the EFS controversy in 2016 where he kind of says like, yeah, I don't like that we call it eternal subordination because I don't like the word subordination, but I basically believe that. And in this article, he says something along, I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but I think I've read it so many times I'm going to get close. He says something about the idea that the father is authority and the son is submission. And he's saying that those are ad intra reality. So there's something fundamental to the father that is authority and there's something fundamental to the son that is submission. And he got he got a lot of heat for that because it's a terrible heretical thing to say. So rightfully so, he got a lot of heat. He's been asked to clarify, and of course he usually doesn't. Um, he usually obfuscates. 
So in this sweater vest dialogue, he actually, it's funny because I'm trying to figure out why this is, and I've got a theory about why no matter what an EFS advocate says to clarify their view, even though they actually make it far worse every time they try to explain it, everyone who believes in EFS, who, who supports EFS or supports EFS advocates somehow thinks it makes it better. So in this episode, he actually says something like, I don't understand how you could have something resembling a, a given command and a, 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 an, obedi- an obeyed command, right? Referring to the father giving a command in eternity past and the son obeying to a command in eternity past. He says, I don't understand how you could have an, um, an, a given command and obeyed command without some sort of friction or distance between the persons. And, and somehow people think this makes it better because then he says, I also don't understand how you could have love between the persons without some sort of friction or distance. But this makes it so much worse because now he's, he's actually coming to the logical conclusion that we've been saying is, is true of EFS this whole time, that eternal functional subordination, eternal relations of authority and submission, eternal submission of the sun, whatever you want to call it, neo-Arianism is my preferred term, um, you end up with a plurality of persons who have a plurality of natures. There's like no way around it. And so when they try to articulate and explain it and, and go further down to trail to try to justify it and, and make it better, they just lean into all the problematic conclusions, partially because there's no other direction to go without refuting their own position, but also because they don't understand why that's a problem. So I, I Doug Wilson apparently doesn't understand why it's a problem to say in eternity past there was some sort of friction or distance between the father and the son. Like he doesn't seem to understand why that's a problematic statement to make. So I'm just denying, I don't know. I'm denying everything involved with that. I'm denying James White. I'm denying Doug Wilson. I'm, I kind of am denying sweater vests, even though I actually like sweater vests. (laughs) I'm denying EFS. I'm denying uh, these sort of weird, silly cross-examine, but not really cross-examination things. They're just designed to make it look like somebody's theology is being investigated and analyzed and interrogated, and it's really not. So don't be deceived. Don't be fooled. James White and Doug Wilson are like BFS now, and James White doesn't even understand the issues enough to ask the right questions. It's really just like it's like when a liberal news reporter throws a softball question at the president. He's like, what do you think about kittens, President Biden? And Biden's like, I like kittens. And everyone's like, oh, man, they ask the hard questions. No, he asked if he likes kittens. That's not a hard question. So James White is not asking hard questions. He doesn't understand the subject enough to ask hard questions. So just don't be deceived by this nonsense. It's just silly nonsense. Can we just tell him to stop? Like, these things aren't really helpful. They're kind of annoying. I mean, I tried. He didn't like it. It's just, I, I get frustrated just because... I think these can draw a lot of people's times time away from things that are actually productive. And right. that not only is it not really probably the right people having this discussion, but it kind of gets blown up as like in such a way to legitimize that a, a real discussion is happening here or it's something right. worthy of like even the average person's time and attention when there's so many greater things we could be studying just in the scriptures and in theology. Theology is important. I just really struggle with some of these conversations that seem so on the on the edge. And that's not to take away from the fact of we've been outspoken about EFS and it's basically its heretical nature. That's nothing away from those things. It's just that right. this stuff isn't helpful. Like just stop it with your little, like basically to me, which feels like staged events where you want to have right. talks 
and make it cutesy. And how dare you make sweater vests and associate them with EMS? <laughs> like sweater vests yes. are beautiful and amazing and keep your core warm and your arms flexible and free and liberated. How dare you bring that into <laughs> your theological nonsense that that's on the periphery that really we don't need to care about, you know? Yeah. So just stop yeah. it. That's like that old, that old song. Why, uh, why does the devil have all the good music? <laughs> I feel like the, the, like the premise of that song is like, we shouldn't let the devil have all the good music. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, we've made commentary. I'm, I'm going to get in so much trouble for this. We made commentary we on go. James White's weird style choices yes. and how he went from like, like weird, crazy, coogee sweaters to now like hipster Anglican with giant gaudy gold crosses and stuff. Why, why should the EFS heretical theology advocates have all the good clothing? I feel like the the <laughs> cadence of that doesn't quite fit with the song. It's close. The sentiment is there. Yeah, that's right on. So I'm with yeah. you. I I join you in this denial, like denying the whole thing, the the people involved, the conversation, yeah, the really lack of rigor there, but also just the you want to say, but why? Yeah. For the record, James White and Doug Wilson both have received personal invitations to come on the show and have a conversation with us about this. As has just as a side note, as has Owen Strahan. So it's not as though we have not tried, or I should say I have not tried because I've been the one reaching out to them. It's not as though the Reformed Brother has not tried to engage these figures and theologians. Um, actually, Bruce Ware and Wayne Grudem have also received personal information, uh, personal invitations, uh, and they just don't. They just don't want to do it. They don't want to actually talk to somebody who may press against their view and may actually interrogate their theology instead of just sort of like giving them like a little elbow nudge and be like, yeah, is EFS really a heretical view? Ah, of course not. Like it's, it's just like this, it's just this boys club of people who don't actually care that you're teaching heresy. And that's just because you're like the witty wordsmith who can fight the culture right. war. Exactly. I mean, that's what it boils down to is like, it's just this, it's just this club of people who don't seem to understand or care that they're teaching people Arianism and it's not a big deal to them. So anyway, that, we, we have to we have to keep moving or we will never stop on waste this train. Time. The train Wait. metaphor is going to continue. Yeah, that's true. Total waste of time. By the way, I'd like to think that you're just going out to the internet and not just extending invitations, but sending informa- your personal information just to everybody like, hi, I'm Tony. Here's my personal yeah. information. <laughs> it's true. I emailed from my personal email address. I mean, I guess. But I like to think- no, like I, you- like, I sent like handwritten ones. I have them yes. printed up. They're like yes. wedding invitations. <laughs> Please join Antonio Arsenal on the 27th of May in the year 2022 of our Lord. Yeah, it's not real. I just you sent are an email. cordially invited to yes. attend the Reformed Brotherhood. You're cordially invited to attend your theology beatdown. <laughs> Please bring the burn cream. The bring, bring your own burn cream. <laughs> that's that's great. It comes with the invitation. Comes with a little bottle of Desitin. You're gonna need yeah, this. There you go. Yeah, you are going to need this. Yeah, that's great. Well, my denial is much more light and maybe falls into the spectrum of the old man complaining, but I'm actually a little bit reticent to bring this up, but that's only because I think some people, maybe like your denial going to be like, what's the, like, that's just a waste of time. Like why even say it? Um, it actually is denying against inappropriate use of the word reticent, which I don't know if you've noticed this. People tend to use that word instead of like what they mean is reluctant. Reticent means right. something very specific. It's about speech. It's about withholding the something verbal. But I hear people all the time being like, I'm very resonant to do that. And I'm like, no, I don't think you are. 
because you're telling me about it right now, at least. So you're not that reticent. So look it up, people. It's a great word. It's true. Just use it for speech. So it'd be Was nice. Was that on your word of the day calendar? It's not. It's just oh. I heard it recently again. And I think it's become, it's part like irregardless or espresso. Like it's just become one of those words that people kind of say and they're like, oh, it sounds really good. And I get what you mean in context, but because I think it sounds like reluctant, since right. we're just like, we're about to crash a train in the old man territory. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just saying it's like, it would be great if, if James White was more reticent. I would like that a lot. <laughs> That's a good use or, of that Or word. like you could sarcastically, after I go on a rant, like a 20-minute rant about EFS, you could be like, Tony, why are you being so reticent about, <laughs> about your views on this? Be yeah, like see? the most ironic statement. That's like super ironic. It's almost meta-ironic. It's, that's a beautiful thing. So nice. I'm not denying against reticent, just the inappropriate use. So I'm curious maybe if other listeners have heard it that way or maybe they're using it that way. And to you, I say, it's okay, but stop it. Just use that's it true. for when you're talking about withholding in the verbal sense. Nice. Well, we have one more little bit of housekeeping that I'm delighted to engage in. I'm very excited. So we are uh, now formally again sponsored by Logos Bible Software. Uh, we, uh, we are so thrilled to be partners with uh, Logos because it's such a great utility. We've talked about the fundamentals package the last couple of weeks, and I would definitely still encourage you, if you do not have a Logos package, to check out the fundamentals package. It's still on sale through the month of May. Uh, you can get it if you don't have another base package for $50, which is a really, really phenomenal uh, price for the resources that you're getting. But uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about a different uh, resource or a different utility that's built into Logos. Uh, I think it's if you have any base package, which you may have to have a certain level. But you can actually look for a theological topic. They have they have these different kinds of guides that you can set up. So you could do a uh, passage guide, which is going to kind of give you like a sort of an exegetical look at it, but not a not an in-depth exegetical one. You can do an exegetical guide, which is going to focus more on Greek. But you can do what's called a theology guide. And if you open up a theology guide and type a theological topic, say the covenant of grace, which we're talking about tonight, it's going to pull up um, a lot of different resources about that. And so it's going to pull up the Lexham Survey of Theology, which is honestly like one of the best short summaries of the doctrine of the covenant of grace that I've read in a long time. It's also going to pull up key verses and uh, what the what the significance of that verse is in reference to the co- the doctrine you're talking about. So, for example, it gives me Genesis 3.15, which reads, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And there's a little note underneath it that says, first statement of the covenant of grace. Uh, it's also going to give you recommended reading. So if you're, if you're trying to dig into a topic, a doctrine, and you're not sure where to start, for example... The Covenant of Grace, you could check out Reformed Dogmatics by Herman Bovink, Volume 3, pages 193 through 232. And if you have that resource in Logos, you can just click on it. It'll open it right up. Um, so it's it's a pretty phenomenal tool for trying to get your head around a theological concept. Um, and then also it's going to give you uh, chapter references in the- systematic theologies. So it pulled up just in 0.8 seconds, 0.08 seconds on my computer, pulled up 155 results in systematic theologies 
related to the covenant of grace. And it's not just like a keyword search. It's not just searching for the words covenant of grace. Because right. it pulled up uh, things on circumcision, things on the Passover, typology resources, uh, resources on the persons for whom Christ engaged and satisfied out of the economy of the covenant of self, of uh, between God and man by Herman Witsius. So this resource is super, super useful if you are trying to dig into a particular topic. Maybe you're having a conversation online with someone and they, they mention a theology uh, subject that you're not familiar with and you want to just take a look. Um, even if you don't have an extensive Logos library, that's the cool thing about this is that the resources that it's going to point you to, it will point you to resources you don't own in certain parts of it. But for the most part, it restricts the uh, the search field to what you actually own in Logos. So you're going to be able to click on most of the things and go directly to them. So you can go to reformbrotherhood.com slash Logos uh, if you'd like to purchase a base package besides the fundamental base package. Um, and you get a 15% discount plus five free books if you purchase through that affiliate link. Um, otherwise, if you're interested in the base package, the fundamentals package, you can still, through the end of the month, you can go to um, Logos May 2022, and um, you can pick that up for $50 if, you're, uh, if you don't own another base package. It's a pretty sweet deal. It's a great deal. And like we said before, one of the things I want to emphasize again for everybody is how sick the indexing is. And this is the real beauty of it, whether right. you are a pastor or preacher or teacher or just a casual studier of the Bible, I guess I should say student of the Bible. The beauty of this, like you said, is by searching for a term, it would be so overwhelming to try to find these resources, but there may be great resources you don't even know about. Logos brings it all together so that when you do a search like this, you actually get exposed to things you probably didn't even know existed. So that's the beauty. Like it makes all of what could be really complicated and overwhelming searching come together at arm's length so that you can put your arms around a lot of really interesting articles, resources, all fully indexed. So you can find them, you can see where they are, you can see the titles, you can get a bibliography, get a new reading list from something that might encourage you or inspire you or compel you to go deeper. This is really just like a great launching point. So it really is a tool that's for everybody. It's not just for, I kind of gets this rap as like it's for people in vocational ministry. And yeah, sure. There's a lot of great tools for that. It's also, I just love it for any, even like casual study or even just yeah. reading of the Bible. If you want to go deeper, if you want to understand more, this is a great way to get that kind of exposure. So yeah. definitely go check it out. That's all we ask of you is go, go and see, go and see. Yeah. And you know, you can, uh, you can download Logos for free and utilize a lot of these tools without making any purchase. They do offer a free book of the month, which allows you to build your library over time. Yes. Um, I know in the past, if you register an account and you put your birthday and they send you a $20 voucher on your birthday to make a purchase. Um, so they make it easy to increase your theological library uh, for not a lot of money, it, way cheaper than you could just buying physical books. I love physical books. There are certain things that I will only have physical books of because I just like having them in my hand. But if you really want to have, Jesse and I were joking about this. You can get so many resources in Logos for a reasonable amount that you could never read all of them. But because they're all indexed and linked together, you can you can do a search in the system and pull up resources that are applicable from across your whole library. Yes. And make connections. I mean, it's kind of tie into this like Zettocast and kick I'm on. Make connections between resources and between topics that you might not have ever been able to make if you had not been able to search and index this vast library. Exactly. Of so it's it's really worth checking out. 
Um, if you're going to make a purchase or if you know somebody who's interested in making a purchase, please go to reformbrotherhood.com slash logos. Again, you can get a, a discount on any base package and five free books of your choosing from a list that they provide. Um, it's a really great way to start working in... in I don't say this lightly, like this is a tool that God has provided to his people that really I think is a blessing that previous generations couldn't even imagine. Um, can you imagine what like John Calvin could do if he had this kind of resource <laughs> allocation True. available to him? Yeah. Um, and we just kind of, I think we kind of squander it. So take a look at it. it. It's an investment that's worth making if you can afford it. Um, and even, you know, there's base packages of all levels. So even if you go with the fundamentals package, it's still a, sw- a sweet deal. It still comes with a lot of resources and you can still do a lot with it. Sometimes I like to consider and ruminate on how much longer Puritan writings would be if they lived in this time. Because they had to get oh, tired man. writing. I mean, even they were probably like, man, I've been in this verse for like, 7,500 pages, but here they could just type. They'd be like, man, there is no stopping me. I just want to keep going all day, all day. So anyway, yes, go check that out. And now I do think it's time for us to move from that coal car into the beautiful scenery car and talk a little bit about covenant of grace. And in keeping with this theme where we've been talking a little about the great resources that Logos provides, let me read, since you brought it up, the Lexham survey of theology, just the little snippet, just the bold type on the entry, because I think it is a really lovely, like talk about, we've been talking about whether it's snipped or Logos, like condensing down, distilling, getting yeah. the central points, getting what really matters in as few words as possible, being parsimonious with our language. So we're getting to the real meat without any of the fluff or the cream. Here's how the, the LST, that's what the cool people call it. Here's how it says, it describes the covenant. This is just like, I don't know, 15, 20 words. A covenant in which God offers all the benefits of salvation to sinners who, by God's gracious ordination, receive them by faith in Christ. Yeah. So until next Boom. time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, for, for those people who might be like, oh, that's a that's a nice definition, but I bet there's not much more. Just to just to read a little bit more, um, and then we'll stop being a commercial and go on to actually talk about <laughs> Well, this the is the good stuff, right? This is right. This, this is, and this, this is why theology. this resource Yeah, this is why this resource is so good because it it is making use of the best theology books and, right. and topics. It says the covenant of grace is a theologically discerned covenant between God and Christ mm. or between God and his people. For most covenant theologians, the covenant of grace encompasses the Abrahamic, Mosaic, David, a Davidic, and new covenants. This is commonly described as one covenant under several administrations. So you you to sort of transition to the topic, like this is another episode. We did a full episode on the covenant of grace. I don't know how different this is going to be, but some people won't listen to that. So we'll cover the basics. The covenant of works, which we talked about last week, is the arrangement that was made by nature in the garden with Adam prior to the fall. And so you can break up, um, and we're speaking from a 1646 continental reformed um, correct <laughs> position on the covenants, <laughs> right? This is the 1689 position, which we're hoping to get an actual real live 1689 Baptist on the show it's to coming. talk about the 1689 position when we get done with kind of the next couple episodes. So that's a little bit of a teaser there. Um, the 1689 position handles this very differently, but the the Westminster and Continental Reformed the kind of classically Presbyterian Dutch Reformed position is that there are, broadly speaking, two ways that God deals with his people. There's the covenant of works, which is the pre-fall arrangement with Adam, by which Adam could obtain, by means of obedience, his eternal reward, confirmation in righteousness, permanence in righteousness, and eternal life. After the fall, because all of Adam's posterity fell in him, 
that was no longer accessible. And so God made a new gracious covenant with Adam that would allow him to be united to a coming redeemer. Right. And that coming redeemer would obtain the same benefits that Adam could have if he had been obedient. He would obtain those same obedi- same uh, same uh, benefits, and then those benefits would be shared covenantally with his people. Right. So that's why you hear in this definition, there's there's sometimes people talk about it being made with Christ. Sometimes people talk about it being made with the elect. The Westminster language is that it's made with Christ and in him, all of the elect. So it's kind of both and, but it's a, it's a qualified made with God's people. It's made with God's people insofar as they are united to the federal head with whom the covenant is made, which is parallel to how the covenant of works works. Covenant of works works. Yeah, that was pretty good. That nice. was real good. Yeah, this is why sometimes you hear this close association of the covenant of grace with the covenant of redemption for the very reasons you just kind of said there, in case people have heard that before. So we have here God, who of course is making all the covenants with his people. He offers life and salvation through Christ to all who believe. But as none can believe without special grace of God, it's really more exact to say that the covenant of grace is made by God with believers or the elect. You know, of course, this is all just going back to what like Jesus plainly communicated, which he famously said that all those whom the father has given to him would come to him and that those who would come to him would be surely accepted. And I think we kind of run by that promise sometimes. We don't think about the weight of what it means that God has made this massive way in John 6 that he's explaining and that all who come will surely be accepted, that all whom the Father draw, God will surely accept through his Son. So in there, you're seeing like that close relation between this idea of the covenant of grace and then the covenant of redemption with really the former resting on the latter. So from eternity, the Father has given a people to the Son and to them was given the promised Holy Spirit so they might live in fellowship with God. So Christ is like this mediator of the covenant of grace in so much as he has borne the guilt of sinners and then he's restoring us to a saving relationship with God. And he is a mediator, not only in the sense of like being the arbitrator, although that is the sense in which the word is used like in First Timothy, but in the sense of having fulfilled all of these necessary conditions for the procuring of eternal salvation for his people. And that, I like the way you said it, that like, well, maybe the way that you quoted the Westminster, I'm, although I'm sure you can't quote that too independently. <laughs> but like that distinction, I think is not, it's like not entirely necessary, but like a helpful little nuance to help us see the beauty of the relationship in the covenant of grace and the covenant of redemption, because this is mostly the world in which we live. What's well, all the world in which we live, right? When we speak about the gospel, we're really speaking about this relationship, but of course it comes or it's hinged or directly connected to everything we talked about in the covenant of works. You really can't have this without the covenant of works. They, they're both like essential to our understanding of the gospel that we tend to impound both of them, but really only speak of one of them. So right. this is like really, again, getting to come into this car in the train and then look out and see all these beautiful vistas when you were like not two minutes earlier, like in a windowless stuffy room, shoveling coal into like this giant engine. Like this is a breath of fresh air. This is a great and glorious thing that God would do this for his children. And again, this sense, like for me, for somebody who works in finance, I think of all of these things as a surety or guarantee, like a surety bond, this sense that something has been made as a down payment for you. When the down payment is made, everything is secured from that point on. Like the destiny of that thing, the establishment of that contract, that relationship is altogether certain, irrevocable, insure. And so we have in the covenant of grace, that kind of surety and guarantee, which comes to us through Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's worth saying too, because as you dig in, you know, as you as the listener dig into this this subject, you're gonna run into a couple 
possibly confusing features of the the literature. So there are some some theologians, um, and I find myself drifting and moving towards this position, although I'm not quite there yet. There are some theologians who will take the covenant of redemption, which we're going to talk more in depth about next week, but the covenant of redemption, which is the pre-temporal agreement or arrangement between the Father and the Son, or the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, depending on how it's framed, um, is the pre-temporal agreement to redeem a people. They're going to take that and they're going to merge it with the covenant of grace. So sometimes they call it the covenant of redemption and the covenant of grace is kind of like a feature of it. Sometimes it's called the covenant of grace and the covenant of redemption is a feature of it. But the feature, the 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 key element of this is that the pre-temporal covenant between the Father and the Son and, and possibly the Spirit and the, the temporal agreement between the, the Father and the Son or the Father and the people who are in the Son, that those are actually just different aspects of the same covenant. So that's one one element of this that you may find in the literature that's a little confusing. And then to, to layer another element of confusion on top of this, one of the resources that most people will point you to if you ask for a good primer on covenant theology is a book by o, o. Palmer Robertson called Christ in the Covenant. It's published by PNR. You can get it in Lagos. It's very useful to have it because you can search it. But he actually calls the covenant of grace, and he's not talking about the pretemporal covenant of redemption now merged with the covenant of grace. He's actually talking about the covenant of grace, but he calls it the covenant of redemption. So you have to, when you're talking about these covenants, whether it's the covenant of redemption, covenant of grace, covenant of works, they're, they go by different names. And it's more right. important to look at what's actually being said about the covenant than it is to get hung up on the name of the covenant. Right. So John Murray is famous, famously known to have, quote, rejected the covenant of works. But what that means is he just doesn't like the language and the term covenant of works. But all of the theology that's represented by that term, he affirms all of that theology, which is different than somebody like Doug Wilson, who affirms the language of the covenant of works, but rejects the theology of the covenant right. of works. So when you're looking at the, the literature, what you're looking for when you're talking about the covenant of grace, as we're describing and defining it as the Westminster Standards use the term, and how most most covenant theologians use the term, you're looking at the covenant that was made between God and Adam in sort of typological form immediately after the fall. Right. So God in Genesis 3.15, he comes and in cursing the serpent, he makes a promise to Adam and Eve that the, the promised Messiah would come and defeat the serpent and would end the hostility between the serpent and the seed of the woman. Right. And in so doing would restore unity between the the God of the universe and the people that he created and who he is the Lord of. So that's the covenant of grace. That arrangement that is made immediately after the fall, in which God promises to the first couple that he will redeem and restore them. Essentially, he says, I'm gonna be your God and I'm gonna do what it takes yes, to exactly. make that work. That's the covenant of grace. Whether you call it the covenant of redemption, the covenant of salvation, the covenant of the council of peace. There's lots of terms people use. Some of them are applied appropriately. Some of them are not applied appropriately. But as long as that's the theological concept you're talking about, then then we're talking about what is commonly called or most most commonly called the covenant of grace. Right on. Let me take a crack at that too, because I know we'll get into this more next week, but bringing it up now for purposes of distinction is, I think, really useful in, in probably the apropos. So I maybe I'm the one that always talks about this. I forget we, when you and I talk. 
let's do genus and species on this, right? Because I think that can kind of be a little bit helpful in just drawing sure. more distinction, like you were saying. So if we make a difference, try this on, you see how this fits. If we make a difference between like the covenant redemption, it's probably only in like the sense that the covenant redemption is the eternal imminent working from eternity. And the covenant of grace, I would say, is the performance of it eminently right. immediately after the fall. Right. So the two covenants are, ah, I'm going to say it this way, and this might, this might bristle a little bit. The covenants are kind of one, like the genus, the higher classification includes both as works of God, but the right. species, the lower classification are the imminent and the eminent works. So I, I think that for me, that's always been helpful. And like, again, just trying to get some general, a uh, general rubric, a little bit of classification. So my brain can kind of distinguish how they are. It is important to think of them separately, but also to understand of them as in tandem or tangent to one another. And I think I like what you were saying about just when does this take place in the sense that like, is it temporal, pre-temporal? And that by itself emphasizes that God is doing this great work from eternity past. Right. That like there is, it's not like, it's not even, it's really cheap to say like, well, there's like a plan B here and that's what he's unfolding. But it's, it's too cheap even to say that because like it's emphasizing that there was a covenant that God made essentially with himself to take care of his people. And so like this just comports with this massive heart we see in Christ Jesus, who is always longing to be with sinners, who is always longing to bring repair and restoration to people's lives in lots of ways in his earthly ministry as an example of this covenant of grace, which God has established for his children. So everywhere I think in this, you just see this overwhelming love of God manifest in Christ who comes as the good doctor, the great physician who desires to be close to those who are unwell, which is really good news for all of us who are fundamentally unwell to know that there is a savior who longs for us, who comes and is the emblem on the cross of God's great love, but also the object of his wrath. So in the covenant of grace, this reconciliation is not cheap. It's not like this new Testament version of God. that's like, God's all love. And like, all you need right. is love. And the covenant of grace is just love of God for you. Like no matter what it's love purchased at a cost at an immeasurable cost. And so it's all comes together in the covenant of grace. Like this, this is like the beauty of the gospel loved ones. Like this is the, the really, really good stuff that makes David want to leap a wall and me run right through it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think it's helpful to, this is probably going to surprise people. So I, I kind of alluded to the fact that you can frame the covenant of redemption and we'll talk, we'll get more into depth in this next week, but we kind of have to now you can frame the covenant of redemption, which is the pre-temporal agreement between Either you can either frame it as an agreement between the Father and the Son, um, sort of to the exclusion of the Spirit, which feels wrong, um, but I don't think is, or you can frame it as the covenant um, that is made between the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Both positions have merit, but the reason that I favor what you might call the Christological formulation of the covenant of redemption is that it actually explains a, a feature of the incarnation that that we we go back to time and time again, right? Every question about Christ in the incarnation is actually two questions, right? Right. Did 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 uh, did the second person of the Trinity have a mother? Well, in reference to his divine nature, no. In reference to his human nature, yes. So if you frame the covenant of redemption in the Christological way, which is is now not necessarily supposed to be like an ad intra internal 
feature of the Trinity, which is how sometimes it gets framed if you're talking about it in reference to the 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 Trinitarian articulation. It's like a, a um, it's like a substantial feature of the doctrine of uh, of God Himself. If you frame it in the Christological sense, then now it's the covenant of redemption, but it's in reference to it's it's made by the Father with the Son in reference to his work as mediator. So you're still talking about the God-man. You're just talking about the God-man prior to the incarnation. It's still in reference to the mediatorial office of Christ. Right on. And so now what you have is you have the covenant of redemption. We might not even need to do an episode next week. Um, (laughs) You have the covenant of redemption made with Christ in respect to his office as mediator in the mode referencing his divine nature. Right, it's the Father making the Father in eternity past, making a covenant with the Son in eternity past, in reference to His role as mediator, but not necessarily in reference to His incarnate state. And so the the the, the nature of that agreement is different than it is in the incarnation. Well, now if you flip that over, now the covenant of grace is the covenant that's made between the Father in reference to his divine nature, because that's all there is a reference to. That's all there is, is the divine nature. And the son in reference to his human nature. So the the covenant of redemption is made between God the Father and God the Son in reference to the mediatorial work of Christ. The covenant of grace is made between God the Father and Jesus Christ as the second Adam, as the incarnate God-man. Right on. And that's important because now we have this parallel. This is where the New Testament picks up this second Adam language or last Adam language. Paul, Paul uses this in a variety of places. But the reason that we have... First Adam, second Adam language. I'm thinking like, um, was it Romans 15? No, First Corinthians 15, Romans something. Jesse's going to use Logos real quick and find it for me. But I'll look it up. Um, you have this second Adam language, and it's because the covenant of works and the covenant of grace are being contrasted in that first and second Adam language. The covenant which was made with Adam was made not only to use language from the, the catechism, not only for himself but for his posterity. Right. And because it was made for him and his posterity, all who all who were in him, which is all of us, sinned in him and fell with him. While the covenant of grace, which is made with Christ and all of his spiritual posterity, all who obeyed in him were righteous in him and will be elevated in him, will be redeemed in him, will be saved in him, will be glorified in him. All of the benefits that come to us are because of this covenantal union. And so it's important to remember that the covenant of grace must be thought of in reference not to Christ's divine nature, but to Christ as the second Adam. And that's key to the understanding of, of uh, Reformed Christian thought in reference to these covenants. We're not talking about some vague idea of some like arrangement between God and Jesus. This is a concrete arrangement that's made between God and the man, Jesus Christ. Right. That's why um, when Paul's writing, I think it's in Timothy, first or second Timothy, when Paul's writing to Timothy and he talks about how the 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 um, redemption of sin is accomplished by the man, Jesus Christ. It's not like the late R.C. Sproul would say where it's the human nature that commits the c- completes the atonement of Christ. No, no, that's not really what's going on. It's that it's the man, it's the covenant of graces in reference to the man, Jesus Christ, because he is the second Adam as the incarnate human Christ. That's really, really important. Right. And where you were at was in Romans 5. Let's just listen to this, these words, because this is like, 
amazing, just incredible language. So this is Romans 5, beginning in verse 14. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God in the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. (coughs) Sorry about that cough. I forgot to hit mute. Yeah, I'm a little bit embarrassed because I went on this long tirade about how great uh, um, Lagos is. And if I had just looked at my resources that were already on my screen, it already says Romans 5, 12 through 21 is related to the covenant of grace. And it says Christ is the federal head. So I just think we have to sort of land that because I think in a lot of theological systems, and it's easy to do, right? You think, well, how is it that Christ didn't sin? How is it that Christ saved us? The answer usually goes back to, well, because he's God. He can do whatever he wants. And but, but we have to recognize, and it's not totally unique, the way that this is approached in Reformed theology. It's not totally unique, but it definitely is distinctive, and it's not common in other systems. The emphasis on Christ's genuine humanity as the, the vehicle or the mechanism by which we become covenant heirs or covenant, we come united to him in covenant, can't be missed, right? The the son takes our flesh. This goes all the way back to the patristic era. This is why I, I laugh when people say that like covenant theology is an invention of the Reformation. When you look at Athanasius, the word takes on human flesh so that humans can be the human nature in a more platonic than I'm comfortable with sense, but this is Athanasius, right? Warts and all. The human nature in the sort of platonic ideal form sense, this this external nature that really exists out there somewhere, that external ideal form is redeemed by Christ because he takes it into himself and he redeems it, he restores it, he heals it, he saves it. That is what we're talking about in the covenant of works. Although because of... Because of the Platonism, we've corrected some of it. But going all the way back to the patristic era, Christ takes into himself the human nature and unites it to his divine nature in his person and thereby sanctifies it by the presence of the Holy Spirit, right? All of those benefits that Christ earns and obtains, right? Hebrews says he learned, uh, he obtained perfection. He learned obedience by suffering. He became perfect by learning obedience by suffering, all of those benefits, all of those lessons, if you will, everything that accrues to Christ, that Christ obtains by his obedience and his passion, all of those things, they come down to us because of the covenant of grace. And the covenant of grace is a gracious covenant in that the only thing that is required for us in the covenant of grace is that we receive Christ. We receive right. him by faith alone. So it's not the stipulations of the covenant of grace are not... You know, even faith is not a stipulation, properly speaking. We're not saved because we have enough faith or because our faith is of the right quality. We're saved because we receive Christ, and in receiving Christ, we receive him and all of his benefits. 
That's the covenant of grace. That's how it's communicated to us. Not by means of a reward for faith. That's the Arminian perspective, right? That's the, that's the remonstrant perspective, that we receive our reward essentially because our faith is sufficient to bring about that reward, right. right? God sees faith in us and rewards that faith. That's the Arminian perspective. The reform perspective is that when we say that we enter into the covenant of grace, it's not like we're making some abstract agreement with God. It's more like a marriage, like the benefits you receive in a marriage, right? When I when I married my wife, there were certain benefits that were received in terms of things that come to me because I'm now a part of this new family. You can even talk about it from like a government perspective. There was tax benefits that I received because I received my wife. Not because I earned those benefits, not because I earned the right to have particular inheritance from her parents or anything like that or money from her bank account. I didn't merit those things. But because I received her, I received everything that comes with her. That's why the Bible uses these bi- these marriage metaphors, because when we receive Christ, in we receive all of his benefits along with him, that reception, that inheritance of those benefits in receiving Christ, that is what is meant when we say the covenant of grace is made with Christ and all those who are in them, in him. So we can't, we shouldn't think, even if we conceptualize the covenant of grace as though it's a covenant made between God and and then his his people directly, we have to always tether that to the fact that the benefits we receive in the covenant of grace are not the same, uh, they're the same benefits we would receive in the covenant of works, but they're not received in the same manner as we would receive right. them in the covenant of works. We don't receive them because of anything we do. We receive them because of who we are united to. That's the nature of this covenant versus the nature of the covenant of works, which is entirely about what you accomplish, what you're obedient to, fulfilling the terms of the covenant. There are no real terms of the covenant of grace. The terms of the covenant of the grace be in Christ. That's how you receive everything in the covenant of grace. You receive Christ through faith. Right. Yeah, that's one of the things that we should kind of use to help us wrap this conversation. That's really helpful. This idea that when we think about the covenant of grace and the benefits received, it's again helpful to note, which you've kind of drew out there, that it's not a quid pro quo. And sometimes you hear faith spoken of in that way. So even aside, if we can set aside like the Armenian perspective that I can somehow come forward with these empty hands and come before God and say, I want to receive you, that if we can set that action aside, still there's this sense sometimes among modern evangelicals that if you demonstrate faith, God owes it to you then to give you the benefits of what that faith should receive or earn. And so the reform perspective would say faith itself, or does say faith itself is the gift. So I like where we've been going on this because one, I hope it's helpful for people to hear how even in the covenant of grace, which again is hinged on the covenant of works, because you have all of this, like you're saying, this special relationship that God makes with his son in the human form, so to speak, where he is basically earning back that which we could not earn, that the Adam 2.0 is exactly what we needed. The last Adam in the sense that this is the last There is no need for another one because here we have the perfect fulfillment, but that fulfillment, as we've talked about before, doesn't come from Jesus being a superhero. It comes from him living as being fully, truly man right? and living in full and complete obedience to God. And therefore that obedience being counted to us as righteousness through faith. But it's a bit like somebody saying, Hey, when was the last time you remembered your baptism? Like, does that mean anything to you day to day? And I would ask the same thing, what we're talking about here with covenant of grace, because you said it well in the beginning, which was the basic premise here is that 
God is going to be our God and we are going to be his people. Right. And so he, on a daily basis, he's going to bestow grace on us, the grace that we need to confess his name and to live with him forever and humble dependence on him. We will then live out our every need and we'll live in trustful obedience from day to day because of this grace that he bestows upon us. So this is not like a one and done thing. It's not like, well, I can appreciate that. God did this thing for me. Christ, you know, of course, mediated and boom, we're all done. We don't think about that anymore. This is like our day to day living and breathing. The fact that we are sustained in many ways, like the perseverance of the saints is the continual outworking of the covenant of grace every day on Tuesday, on Sunday morning, on Saturday evening, all the time, everywhere. So it should be something that we continually kind of draw our minds back to because it's beautiful and it's glorious and it is our existence. So it's just a lovely thing, I think, to think about not merely as this like grand theological concept, which of course it is like you can climb this mountain and survey where you've come from and been like, man, this is exceptional. It's so beautiful. But at the same time, it's, it's also like you just walk around your neighborhood or filing your taxes or going to work. Also, there is this beauty that God saves you and gives Jesus a surety bond that all who come to him will not be turned away, which is also very devotional pastoral in the sense that I think that applies to our daily living as well, because in the greater sense God has made the surety for you and will not turn you away. In the lesser sense, when you come to him with need, he will not turn away, especially because we come, as Hebrews says, into the throne room of God, being able to see that we can stand boldly before the Father because of this perfect one who is at the center of the covenant of grace. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a good place to wrap this up. Well, I'm sure we'll loop back on some of these topics next week when we come back to the covenant of redemption, because these two covenants— even if you conceptualize them as separate covenants or distinct covenants, um, you can't help but refer one to the other and exactly. back and forth between the two. Because the 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 arrangement to save or the agreement to save in eternity past is intimately tied up with the actual saving in, you know, I don't know, tempor- temporality, present, I don't know what you want to call it, but... So you can't refer to one without the other. So we'll come back to a lot of these topics. Um, we'll come back to a lot of these subjects, and we'll, we'll focus more on the, um, the, I don't know, conceptual elements of the covenant of redemption next week. But again, th- this is such an important topic, and this is one of those things that I think a lot of people coming, coming into Reformed theology from something like New Calvinism or leaky dispensationalism or kind of John Piperism or whatever you want to call it, New Covenant theology, they come into this, and and Covenant of Grace sounds like such a warm, friendly thing, right? But it's it's actually quite different than what you anticipate. You think Covenant of Grace coming from New Covenant theology, you kind of think Covenant of Grace. You're like, oh, this is the new law. This is like the law, the royal law of love that I gotta, you know, I gotta fulfill. That's not at all what we're talking about. Um, you come into it from like lordship salvation theology, and you think like this is this is what it means to make Jesus Lord. This is my covenant. I've got these stipulations. That's not at all what we're talking about. When we talk about the covenant of grace, we're talking about an entirely gracious bestowal of benefits for all who trust in Christ. No strings attached. No conditions attached. Right? Faith in Christ is not a condition to fulfill. Fulfill. It's an an ability or a habit or a a receptive instrument that is granted to us by the Holy Spirit because he chooses us. So we have to land this. We have to get it right. If we turn the covenant of grace into a covenant of works in any sense, we've not only have we lost Reformed theology, we have, but we've lost the gospel entirely. Right. And we don't want to do that, obviously. So we'll come back to this topic <laughs> next week. We'll, we'll, we'll loop back on some of these subjects as we cover the covenant of redemption. 
And uh, yeah, I just think this is such a great topic. I, I love talking about the covenant of grace because it is such a such a it, it is a warm fuzzy it doctrine. Is. Like it makes you feel good, right? But in a different way than I think most Christians, exactly. uh, most Reformed Christians, or reforming Christians really understand or really come to. Right, it kind of sneaks up on you in a different way because there, there's yeah. this sense that somehow we need to we hear Jesus give the Sermon on the Mount, and even people who are not Christians, not believers, maybe don't even like Christianity, might acquiesce to that and say, I just love the teaching of that. You know, this idea of not judging and turning the other cheek and being peaceful and being loving, being gracious. Because, you know, when we, when we say something is, you know, when we say somebody is like graceful, we say there's like a, we might say there's like a beauty to their outer behavior. When we say somebody's gracious, we mean there's often like, there's a beauty to like their inner behavior. And I think sometimes we get tripped up in the Sermon on the Mount idea because in there, to your point, we see that there's some stuff we ought to do. We ought to like turn the other cheek. We ought to try to be more kind. We ought to try to really love our neighbors. When I read that alongside of the covenant of grace, what I see is that I cannot do any of those things except through the covenant of grace, which empowers me and gives me the ability even to understand that these things are so far outside of my own undertaking that I, I should not even try to make a relationship yeah. where I think if I do some of these things, I'm a Christian, or if I do something that God will love me more or accept me better. It's just nonsense to think that way. And the covenant of grace, like you said, actually has the hard edge so that it might turn around and comfort you with the soft edge. And yeah. it's not just this one law is love. And if we all just loved each other, wouldn't we get along? Like, and then there's the internet. So, you know, like, it just seems to me that you're absolutely right. Like, it, it's a little bit unexpected, but in uh, you know, like the best surprises, this sounds cliche, but the best surprises are the unexpected surprises. The ones, or like you watch a movie or read a book where like you didn't expect you get anything out of it and it ends up being something that you're just like, wow, that was amazing. That's kind of the yeah. covenant of grace, I think. It's, yeah. you hear the title, like you said, and you're like, I know what this is about. And the more you look into it, the more you think, oh, I don't know. I didn't know at all that it was going to be like this. <laughs> and this is far better than I could have imagined it to be. Yeah. Yeah. You're right about that. Well, not to belabor the point and to, to save something for next week, um, check it out. Uh, again, you can check out our Logos affiliate code if you go to reformbrotherhood.com slash Logos. Lots of other great ways to join uh, the Brotherhood. You can reformbrotherhood.com and you can click on the Join the Brotherhood link. Ignore everything about social media because we don't do that anymore. But you can uh, also, you know, we're, we're experimenting now with Slack, but for now you can still join our Telegram channel. Uh, you can go to t.me slash reformbrotherhood, uh, and there'll be information about joining the Slack if you want to be kind of part of that pilot group. Uh, but yeah, there's lots of great ways to get involved. And uh, Jesse, until that time when others get involved, and until next time, <laughs> honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.